Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Rosanna Chowdhury, and I am Head of Programme and Planning at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and I'm also Chair of the LSE Civil Service, Government and Public Policy Alumni Group. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Guru Madhavan to the LSE today. Guru, amongst his many accolades, is a biomedical engineer and senior policy advisor, conducts research at the National Academy of Sciences, and has been named a distinguished young scientist by the World Economic Forum. Tonight, Guru will discuss the essentials on the engineering mindset from his new book, Think Like an Engineer. And I hope during the lecture and in the Q&A afterwards, we can explore some of the concepts um, and how they apply to economics and public policy. I'll be listening very intently. Um, a few notifications before we start. Um, that for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for the event is LSE Guru. Ask people to put their phones on silent so not to disrupt the event tonight. And we are recording it, and subject to technical difficulties, it will be available as a podcast. Um, there will be a book signing afterwards um, for, for the book, just outside the venue here today. Um, and before we get started, please welcome me in joining me in giving a warm LSE-style welcome to Guru. Just a first check. Okay, looks like you can hear me. All right. Thank you so much, Rosanna. And it is uh, such a treat for me to be here. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to taking you all on a tour of ideas. And uh, as part of this multidimensional tour, you will come across a lot of characters, some of them from the book, and uh, hoping that I might be able to distill some ideas that we might all be able to relate to and have a conversation about as we go about later this evening, uh, especially on topics relating to economics and public policy, something that we all care about. So the first stop in this tour is New York State. I'm going to take you all to upstate New York, north, uh, the northeastern part of the United States here, specifically the city of Rochester and its neighborhood. I want to introduce you to Jennifer Kuhn. Okay? Five foot four, blonde hair, brown eyes, wide smile, and uh, had an enduring personality. She loved going to pumpkin patches, and she adopted uh, two wolves, called them Teddy Bear and Chris, and uh, had a uh, nice set of friends and so forth. She was an undergraduate student um, majoring in child psychology. She was working part-time in a local uh, clinic, a psychology clinic. She was a receptionist there, um, meeting, greeting people and uh, you know, managing files and so forth. And uh, so that's what she did. And one Saturday, uh, November 13th, 1993, uh, Jenny Kuhn finished her shift at the psychology clinic around 10.30 a.m. or so. And then she gets onto her Mazda compact car and uh, drives to the nearby Pittsford Plaza. Okay? Um, so the first stop she makes was an ATM machine. She gets some cash, and right across the street, she goes to a bagel store where she wanted to buy some assorted bagels to take home so that she could have uh, brunch with her uh, parents. Okay? So she's coming out from the bagel store and uh, picks up the bagels, and she's walking toward her car, and she realizes she's been followed by a tall man in his late 20s. Okay? And then she's immediately abducted, thrown into her own car in the back seat of the car, and then driven away. She's being held captive for two hours after that. Okay? 
And this is Saturday morning, 10.30, so bright daylight. And uh, she's beaten, and uh, she's raped. Somehow, Jenny manages to call 911, the emergency number in the United States, through her mobile phone. And uh, the call gets connected to the emergency dispatcher person. And uh, the person is connected, and she says, hello, hello, can I help you, and everything. And there's screaming going on on the other side and everything. And the dispatcher is not able to locate the precise position of Jenny because there was no localization technology that we now take for granted in the form of GPS, global positioning system back then. It was available for military use. It wouldn't be available for civilian use until 1995. Okay? So the call is being recorded as atrocities happening there. And the dispatcher keeps asking the same question because she's helpless. She can't track it, <laughs> and she can't exactly pinpoint where Jenny is. This is all happening again on a Saturday morning. Okay? And then, in the call, it's recorded, there's a gunshot. So uh, the call, uh, the, the bullet ruptures Jenny's lungs, and Jenny begins to scream, and she's you know, in deep pain, and she's begging the a tormentor to take her to a local hospital. And uh, um, it's just really complicated. Again, the whole call is being recorded. And then a few minutes later, another um, gunshot follows, this time to her head. And uh, several minutes later, or some time later, um, her body was found in a, in, inside her car in a rundown alley um, in downtown Rochester, along with the bagel she had originally purchased. She was 18 years old. So, back home, David and Suzanne Kuhn, Jenny's parents, are you know, waiting for her daughter to come. Once the news arrives, it just sucks the soul out of their lives. And what do you do? And uh, David Kuhn well, was born in uh, rural West Virginia, used to uh, uh, help, help out as a mechanic to his uh, dad and everything. And uh, he studied in the local school, which had like three rooms. His uh, grandmother used to make lunch for the kids and so forth. So very modest upbringing. And then he finally ended up, he studied industrial engineering and landed a, a position in a company called Bosch & Lom. Many of you might know it, a company that makes vision care products. And uh, that's where he was. He used to manage the factory floor and uh, do efficiency studies and so forth. So classic uh, engineer. And two weeks after the, the tragedy, David Kuhn um, takes on his own investigation because it is just completely mind-boggling to everyone involved here, even the police, because it's a crowded place, it's a public place, it's bright daylight. How can this happen? No one has any clue. So he takes his notepad, goes to the mall, uh, Pittsford Plaza, and uh, starts taking notes like a wiring diagram in an electric circuit, puts, pinpoints all the cameras and the say, uh, magnetic alarms and the plainclothes security staff members and the, the guy who just goes around the mall once in a while, security check and all those things, everything. And then he goes into department stores, sees where all these security devices are set up and everything. And here's the most fascinating thing. He finds that the merchandise in the stores have more security than the customers themselves. Okay? So... He comes up with this idea, he comes up with a schematic, writes a long letter to the local county legislator and sends ideas uh, to him saying that, okay, now I think we, need, we are in a state where we need a CCTV 
uh, technologies and everything. Again, this is 1994, so you have to put yourself in that context, something new uh, for that time and everything. And um, so it gives a, a good technical reason to enhance public safety in public places. Never hears back from the county legislator. So David Kuhn is pissed. At least he thinks if he's in that position, he would be at, le at least have the decency to respond <laughs> to the letter that he has gotten and everything. So um, based on that uh, frustration, he chooses to run for the county seat <laughs> now while working full time um, at Bosch and Lom. So he starts his campaigning and everything. And it's, it's a tough uh, uh, run. He learns a lot, meets a lot of interesting people, learns quite a bit about community activities and so forth. And uh, um, the election day comes and the results come out, David Kuhn loses by 600 votes, a 51-49 margin defeat. And this was pretty impressive for David Kuhn because this is happening in a constituency where the county legislator has been the incumbent for the past 14 years, sitting in that place unopposed. So this is technically a, a jubilant uh, experience uh, for him, but he doesn't give up. So while um, he, you know, during the time after um, this election, um, the running for election uh, experience, uh, the assailant for Jenny also gets captured and, uh, uh, you know, uh, sentenced 37 and a half years uh, in the New York State Penitentiary and so forth. So that all happened. But David thinks that his job is not over because that might be a very narrow solution. He wants to create a solution space that could help other people um, in many different ways. So something happens in 1996. Um, the assembly seat uh, in this constituency opens up. There's a special election for that, and David chooses to run for it. Now he has had some experiences uh, with community organizing and all sorts of things, and now he understands other uh, issues. Because Jenny was not the only um, case that happened that year. There were several others, so he's trying to uh, understand the root causes behind each of these criminal behaviors and everything. So he runs for the seat, and this is, again, being upstate New York, um, brutal blizzards. He goes on knocking on doors of people in two feet snow and uh, tries to get support, and uh, he wins. Then he goes to Albany, a completely different experience. Here's an engineer motivated by personal tragedy and bereavement is transported into a completely different world that he's not used to, politics. How does he do it? So the first and foremost thing is engineers, I mean, in politics that you need to do is talk to people. I mean, engineers really aren't uh, uh, that comfortable doing that, and some of us aren't even humans. <laughs> so, so you need to really put yourself in this. So he has to get uh, out of the comfort zone and talking to all these people and uh, uh, holding hearings. He has no clue. He doesn't even know what a legislative calendar looks like. He doesn't even know what the bills are that they're going to be voting on any specific day and so forth. So that's the level of motivation. He's, in effect, learning a foreign language. So that's his experience. And then, even within his own office, he's wondering, why does it take so long for something to happen? The moment you got a phone call and for it to be resolved, why does it take so much? So he's an industrial engineer. He's running time and motion studies, writing equations on his, uh, on his charts and papers and everything. And his fellow staff members are thinking he's a completely crazy guy. He doesn't belong here. So I think that's the uh, type of uh, mindset that he brought to this uh, uh, thing. Okay? And uh, why, does he, why is he doing all these things? Why was he doing all these things? His goal was to bring in a technologic infrastructure where a person with a mobile 
wireless phone, is able to call the emergency um, dispatch center and be able to receive help in a timely fashion. Now, that's a duty that we all have. I mean, that's, that's something basic we can all expect from the government <laughs> as taxpayers and everything. So he's trying to bring in a technological infrastructure, navigating it through a messy policy process that he's completely uh, foreign to. So what he's trying to do is he wants to design this enhanced 911 or E911 uh, infrastructure where you have uh, an automatic number identifier once you place a call, and then that goes to a you know, local uh, exchange carrier service, usually moderated by your cell phone company, and then it goes to a 911 um, circuit, and then automatically it gets uh, routed to a, uh, a public service answering point, and then, and then you can see the dispatch immediately happens. So the most important thing here is not the 911 alone. You need the localizing technology, too. So again, we talked about uh, the availability of GPS at that stage for civilian use, right? So there was another technology that was widely being used. It's called triangulation technology. So here you have a cell phone system. You have to beam it at three different um, cell phone towers. And then you get an angle, just triangle. And then you can localize um, you know, the person who's making the call within an accuracy of 200 yards. Seems great, right? Yes, if you're stuck in a cornfield in Pennsylvania, not in midtown Manhattan, let alone a skyscraper. That's where a GPS brings its accuracy and resolution that you're able to then advance your own uh, uh, positioning system here. So that's, that's something what he was trying to put in. So in effect, what David Kuhn was trying to do is like have, develop a three-dimensional model in his head. The first dimension of it focused on the technologic part of it so because he needs to understand what the technologic advancements were. So uh, then you had the technology companies coming and lobbying uh, for with their special interests and so forth. So he really needed to understand and keep up to date on the technology part of it. The second part, funny part, is the political dimension. You're talking about elected officials coming from all parts of the state, and each of them with very different uh, educational backgrounds, political backgrounds, belief systems, and everything. And he's trying, and trying to explain the technological basis of GPS to them when they don't even understand what latitudes and longitudes mean. That talks about the level of uh, scientific literacy in that constituency <laughs> that he was uh, working in. So it's, it's a hard time. So he has to be a teacher, and a so that's a second way of communication that he has to take on. And finally, he is in the political business. He needs to get reelected every two years. So he needs to play that game. He needs to demonstrate value to his constituency so that they reelect him again and again. So he has to be reelected at least a few times to get his job done. Okay? So he's trying to do all these things over a span of a decade. Three times the bill uh, is, goes to the floor, it uh, gets to the governor's office, gets vetoed. Again, not once, not twice, thrice. You never know. This is one of those mysteries of politics and policy. You never know how the, the political belief systems really collide here, even when it makes sense to implement something that's beneficial to the public at large. Okay? While this is happening, there are a lot of people who are using Kuhn's story as uh, you know, as a, as a reason to get themselves reelected. They would go to their constituency and talk about, you know, I'm supporting this bill, why don't you elect me? <laughs> but the bill just wouldn't become a law. All right? So, 10 years of frustration. Then something happens in January 24, 2003. Something unusual. Four teenagers get on this rowboat and, uh, and in New York City, 
it's about 9.30 p.m. And they just drift into Long Island Sound. It's 33 degrees Fahrenheit air temperature. That's 0.5 Celsius. Okay? And um, they were just interested in forming a band together, you know, vibrant teenagers and so forth. And then 20 minutes later, the, the, fire, the, the rowboat starts taking in water and then starts sinking. One of the kids had a cell phone, calls 911. The call lasted 12 seconds. Again, same thing happened. It goes to the dispatcher, and the dispatcher doesn't have enough information about their whereabouts to send any emergency help and so forth. And that's it. All the kids go down. Sunk. The only difference is this is New York City. This was New York City's Jenny Kuhn moment. The New York Times carries headlines <laughs> on this topic. Huge constituency, major powerful uh, actors in the city and everything. It took 14 hours for the emergency dispatchers to send any help to these kids. It was too late, okay? They just went down. Their bodies would be washed the shore later that spring. Because I'm talking about winter. So now Kuhn's ideas and all his efforts come into picture. It sometimes, and oftentimes, takes a crisis to bring common sense uh, in, 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 the public, in the world of public policy. What we sometimes take for granted in the world of engineering, you really have to put in something in, um, you know, before something bad happens, and that all the time, it ha I mean, it's, it's one of those mysterious things in public policy that we're all trying to uh, understand, okay? And then the fourth, fourth time, the bill goes to the governor's office, and it was vetoed again for some mysterious reason, and now the House, the Assembly overrode it, and it became a law. And New York State became the first large state to make this into a law, and then other countries started to begin adopting this into uh, a law. And uh, anywhere in the U.S., you call 911, you will be tracked <laughs> to the exact millimeter probably now. And I think that's the same case. So here's a passage from the book that you might, uh, that summarizes this scenario very well. After the law was passed and implementation ramped up, Kuhn soon faced a barrage of requests for interviews, keynote addresses at conferences, and testimonies in Washington. One technology bulletin profiled Kuhn this way. The word hero is too often thrown around too lightly. But if you define a hero as someone who battles the odds, fights powerful opponents, and works his way through daunting obstacles to accomplish something that needs doing and to make a difference, well, then David Kuhn is a hero. Over time, people came to Kuhn and began thanking him for his leadership. A public safety answering point official told Kuhn about an elderly couple who had accidentally driven off into a wooded area. Nobody could see them. When they called 911, the emergency responders located them and dispatched help within minutes. In another instance, a man fell off a snowmobile in remote wilderness upstate. He broke his back and was lying on an icy slope. Nobody knew where he was. He himself didn't know where he was, nor had he told anyone he was going out. He was in tremendous pain. And the only thing he had with him was his mobile phone. He called 911. Within the next 15 minutes, he was located and rescued by emergency responders. I would have frozen to death out there, the rescued man would tell Kuhn later. You saved my life. So what did Kuhn actually do? This is something Mother Nature does on a day-to-day -day basis, time and again, the whole concept of recombination, putting things together and seeing how the variation could take you to the next stage and everything. Any biology major here knows what I'm talking about here. OK? 
Okay? That's exactly what he did. He put two disparate technologies together to achieve something tangible and something so important and so profoundly helpful for our daily lives. Okay? For recombination to happen, there are two things that needs to happen. First is the ability to identify an opportunity. The second is the ability to capitalize on the opportunity. Identifying an opportunity alone is not sufficient. Let's take, for example, this design engineer, Harold Willis, who used to work in Michigan in a car company. Okay? He was going after a very narrow technical uh, solution. He wanted something lightweight, durable um, uh, for the machines that he was building. So he comes across vanadium steel as a solution for this. So okay, this is a very narrow, typical engineering-based approach. Okay, I found what I needed, and I think this is really helpful for me. But his boss, Henry Ford, had the vision for what happened because he was looking at a market solution. He was looking at something that he could build. Off. Like he, will, he was envisioning an automobile technology that could carry a family of five that cost less than $3,000 and could give X amount of miles per gallon and so forth. So you're seeing the complete different um, frame um, here. So I think that's, that's exactly how you exploit an opportunity. So by build, bringing together vanadium steel and conveyor belt technology, what we have is a mass production technology. Henry Ford and Harold Witness did not invent a car. They recombined it. They remixed it. And out comes this. And now we have frozen pizzas coming out of the assembly line that are in our refrigerator. It's the same idea that have massive impact. One of the core ingredients of the engineering way of thinking is what I call modular systems thinking. And that's something uh, you'll find more in the book itself. The ability to deconstruct a large system into pieces. Understanding how these pieces act on their own. How they act in unison together. How these components, how these modules are linked together in, in space, in time, in logic, in functionality. And you put them back together. Okay? You reconstruct it and see if the thing works. <laughs> If it works, then improve it. If it doesn't work, figure out why it doesn't work out. So this is an iterative, stepwise refinement process. What I'm saying is not completely foreign to all of you. We all used to do this when we were two years old, breaking things apart. Somehow, we just stopped cultivating that habit going forward. And this is something engineers still do in a much more professional, much more organized, much more structured uh, format. So, and again, modular systems thinking, it varies according to context, because there are Engineers come in extraordinary varieties. There are people who build refineries, and then people who write software code, and people who build automobiles. So there's nothing called an engineering method analogous to what we know as a scientific method. So engineering varies according to the context. It's important to also uh, figure out the difference between science and engineering for a minute here, because if the essence of science is about discovery, the essence of engineering is about creation. That's very important to know. People often confuse um, both together. Sometimes we even conveniently go about calling science and technology completely ignoring engineering from it, even though it, technology is a byproduct of both science and uh, engineering. So it's uh, one of the things to um, keep in mind. The three basic qualities of the engineering mindset. The first is the ability to bring structure where there's none, especially when abstractness prevails. Okay? A historian might apply structure, too especially on events that have happened decades or centuries you know, in the past. But an engineer often has to do that in advance on systems that don't exist yet. One of my undergraduate uh, mentors, uh, civil engineering professor, used to tell me, 
a good engineer is able to visualize not just the fact that you know you have two pieces of land and a river running between so you can imagine a bridge in between that's not it anyone can do that but a good engineer is able to visualize the forces the stresses and the strains on the load-bearing columns of those bridges even before such a thing exists that's a good engineer so that's the level of uh, intensity I'm talking about when it comes to structure and structure could also mean taking an organized approach to innovation bringing you know take a much um, uh, an organized stepwise approach to achieving something the second is a unique ability to design under constraints constraints are everywhere each of us have constraints time money um, religion culture psychology they come in all sorts of formats and dimensions but the ability to produce utility under constraints is something seriously important in engineering. There is no other profession that operates in that amount of pressure. The tower bridge that's there, 121 years old, it still works. <laughs> it still has to work, and it will work. When it first went up, there was no rough draft for it. Science always has a first draft. Science is always a first draft. But the blueprint for the tower bridge had to work the first time. So that's the level of uh, commitment. And uh, uh, so the creations of engineering are harshly valued, and they are honestly valued. And I think that's a good thing. Finally, the ability to make considered judgments, what we call trade-offs. Okay? Um, putting stronger emphasis on the stronger goals and lesser emphasis on the weaker goals. So structure, constraints, and trade-offs are the one, two, three punch of the engineering mindset. Okay? So I'm at the London School of Economics. So economists in this crowd might be detecting some affinity to this uh, concept because we also uh, talk about I mean, they also talk about constraints and uh, uh, trade-offs and so forth. Let's spend a minute looking at the commonalities in the world between the world of economics and engineering. Both are quantitatively rigorous, rational um, in their approach, and so forth. So there are a lot of uh, uh, um, lessons that economics has taught engineering and YC uh, versa. But what are the interesting uh, uh, elements is the constraints in economics is constrained only by your paradigm, by your ideology. The constraints change according to the theory that you choose. In engineering, the second law of thermodynamics is the second law of thermodynamics. The physical realities are set. So that is something very interesting because I'm yet to come across a design for an airplane designed by a liberal engineer and a conservative engineer. This happens all the time when we develop economic policies. It doesn't matter when you're flying in an airplane. The damn thing has to work. <laughs> so this is an interesting thing. I'm learning more about economic policy as I you know, think about this. The second is, I talked about the quantitative uh, mapping here. When did economics become so mathematical, and why did economics become so mathematical? I take it this is not a fresh question. This is not a novel question, but I think it's fresh for the context that I'm, uh, I'm thinking about. You look at Adam Smith's writing. I, I couldn't sense many equations in his writings and, at all, but some, something happened in the early part of the 1900s or so, and then uh, economics, I think, became much more axiomatic than a descriptive um, a profession, So, which is something uh, fascinating. And I think... Uh, 
thermodynamics had some hand in it, uh, if you look at it. And who knows, some people are even suggesting that economics got physics envy and decided to become more mathematical um, and so forth. So, but the interesting thing is, I mean, if you look at Paul Samuelson's Nobel Prize winning economist, very renowned, and look at his earlier works and so forth, you look at how um, the, the thermodynamic concepts were applied to economy, it's just fascinating. Because Heat engines were invented, you know, right up, it's an authentic British invention, and then the science followed. So this is one of those interesting things where engineering led to new uh, forms of inquiry. And then you look at a heat engine, and then uh, you look at the potential energy of the heat engine, and then you have, um, you use that to uh, model the economy. So potential energy is utility, the kinetic energy is the budget, <laughs> and then you have uh, the heat flux, this is the cash flux. So there are like direct analogies on how you um, uh, early, earlier works in this area have you know, adapted and applied to eco uh, economics, so, which is fascinating. I'm, I'm not here to judge whether it's wrong or right, but I think something is dubious there. But it also assumes that we are able to reduce feelings into a differential equation. And you're also treating humans as autonomous agents. I'm not a robot. I can do some crazy things on the floor right here. But so that's that's one of those interesting things. So that's where um, you know the way engineering perceives these physical limits. The speed of light is the speed of light, okay? But human beings are like particles of light. We can go in any different direction. So it's very difficult to put a mathematical model on top of uh, uh, human behavior, and that's something we'll touch upon. So as I mentioned, economics has a lot to has offered a lot to engineering design. One of the first things is uh, uh, the development of ATM. Without the concept of cash, what is the use for an ATM? <laughs> I mean, I think the Romans are probably, I mean, depending on uh, economic historians here, might talk about this much better than I can. I mean, uh, let's say economists invented cash, the concept of cash, then you know, engineering then followed. It's a fascinating, it's an, again a British uh, invention, very uh, interesting story. Um, John Shepard Barron, a Scottish engineer, he goes to a bank on a Saturday afternoon, and the bank's closed, and the bank manager refuses to open the uh, bank again for, I mean, he's closed for the weekend, and uh, he's out of cash, and he's really frustrated. He looks at a chocolate vending machine next to it. He says, if that can deliver, uh, dispense chocolates 24-7, why can't I have a machine that <laughs> dispenses cash? So really a simple correlation there, but it's, it's easy to tell that as a story to, let's say, a school kid or something, but the system of systems that underpin an ATM, it's just utterly fascinating. You go to an ATM machine, you put in your card, within three seconds you get your cash and you walk out. But imagine all the circuits <laughs> that are talking to one another to make sure it is me who's inserting my card to get money from my account, the security system, the communication technologies, the instrumentation, and all those things. Now that uh, requires modular systems thinking. You just cannot put in a box on the uh, a corner of a street and so forth. Similarly, barcodes, they've revolutionized the way we think about logistics and so forth. Again, it was an economic need that led to an engineering uh, outcome. And the universal product code displayed here was developed by George Lohrer, who it came out of the, the frustrations in the grocery industry when they were looking to save money. And uh, here comes this IBM engineer who has never worked on this before, and then comes up with this barcode technology. Again, a fascinating story, also uh, discussed in the book here. So you talk about um, the influence of economics on engineering design. Now let's get to the second part of the equation before we get into the actual uh, learning part here. Public policy is a little bit more complicated. 
okay? Because the vectors in public policy in all different directions. And uh, everyone is, is after something. <laughs> everyone wants something. So there are multiple objectives uh, here, which is quite different than, let's say, a very focused objective as build a ship and make sure it floats. This actually relates to um, what philosophers call frame mismatch. Okay? It happens all the time. To, it must have happened to every one of us here. You go into an elevator, you're on the seventh floor, you're trying to get to the lobby. Okay? You press the lobby button, you go down on the elevator, the elevator stops, you walk out, and then you realize you're on the fourth floor. Okay? And what you didn't know was there was someone else on the fourth floor trying to get to the lobby and press the elevator going down, trying to get in. So this is part of the this is a variable that's not part of your mental model. You just did not expect it. When the, when the elevator stopped, you assumed that that was the lobby. Politics has a lot of hidden variables, and so does public policy, as we were talking about earlier. How are you going to even model those things, especially in a black box <laughs> way and everything? So I think that is the, the, the bigger uh, challenge here. This type of framing mismatch also exists in engineering. We call it special interest groups. You put a bunch of engineers in a room, let's say a structural engineer, a mechanical engineer, a software engineer, and an aerodynamicist, and ask them to design an airplane. Each of them have like come up with very different designs with their own set of priorities and everything. But you can make them to focus on something very important. Regardless of who designs it, the airplane has to fly. If you don't agree upon something, the airplane will never fly. So the alternatives are pretty bad. So that's something, um, that's a parallel I can see, which is in short contracts, the way uh, engineering and public policy work. So there are three areas in which engineering design can help, um, help us think about um, economics and public policy. The first of them that I offer is systems analysis. You probably got an idea the way I described modular systems thinking earlier on. You really need to understand the pieces and how they're related. And I think it will be very helpful uh, to have the technical ability to synthesize them together and uh, understand how it goes. And economics is a little bit complicated. But let me give you an example how this was actually put in practice. In early 2000, the city of Stockholm was just facing some outrageous uh, traffic issues, enormous amount of congestion. The commute times were just going up. Frustrations were just huge uh, in the minds of the commuters and everything. So um, the Stockholm city officials sit and um, try to figure out a way, and they say, okay, what's going on here, and everything, and, you know, bring in city planners, they say, okay, build another bridge, build another road, and uh, the city officials weren't really convinced. They said, okay, let's go to IBM, and IBM sends a bunch of engineers, you know, engineers come in, they put in here, they, the first thing that they do is uh, they take the map of Stockholm and chunk it down into these big, small, bite-sized elements, modular systems thinking, I guess, and then uh, they put sensors everywhere around the city. Well, on the highways and the bridges and everything, and even in unrelated places, in parking lots and supermarkets and understanding to, under, to, you know, to get a full system input, system image in their mind and everything. And then they develop a model. Then they take that model and go to the Stockholm city officials and say, uh, no, you're not going to build a bridge. You're not going to build another road. What you're going to do is tax people who are using the uh, highways in peak hours in the morning. Okay? So... This is the system. So it's not just a, a conceptual idea. They also implemented it in practice. And you can see how the, this is a car with a smart tag and using a, resourcefully using a, a sensors and transponders. And you have back then uh, 
it, we didn't have the technology to automatically charge our credit card, so it has to be connected to a local grocery store or a convenience store or something like that. So this was the idea that they uh, came up with. It. So this was a complete systems design that had enormous amount of effects in the way people commuted. So in effect, a behavior change because people chose not to commute during the peak hours or used to take public transportation, and thereby uh, emissions plunge and uh, and this was also generating some revenue. So they tested it on a pilot basis, and then they implemented it. And again, this idea spread uh, everywhere. And I think everyone here from London knows uh, what this could all mean. And this also has another effect, because over time, people might get price insensitive. You might charge 14 bucks to just cross the street, but people will still be willing to pay. So there is an economic dimension to it. And that's an area where economists need to help engineers think about these type of uh, things. So this idea of continuous optimization is everywhere. I used a map to come here to London School of Economics, not to drive or anything, even to walk. I took a map. I used a map here, so which is fascinating because this is what Google engineers do. They again break it down into small pieces, again completely data-driven, building systems-level model, and you can see the uh, map here. And not only did it show. Uh, just show me the location of it, but also gave me some interesting suggestions nearby hotels and restaurants. I mean, gave me the full address and the street view. I mean, imagine the amount of work that has gone into 3D panoramic view and user-contributed images and everything that's all happening in the background, what we call systems integration. There's also interesting, it all, this LSC seems to be an okay school here, gotten a 4.5 stars on a 5, 114 reviews here, and then uh, here are three comments that I found out. Amazing university, they have the most amazing chips. <laughs> and uh, an incredibly great international university, another one said. And someone said, LSE's great public lecture program. I think we should take it as a compliment here. <laughs> so so this, this are all the information that just pops up just on a small screenshot. I didn't even do. Now, here's the most interesting thing. What these maps are able to do is add or superimpose a level of complexity, which is so easy for us. Traffic intensities. You have green, yellow, red, and dark red. Don't go and everything. I think I even saw the, the blockade that we have here um, So uh, on a 3D view and everything. So this is enormous amount of work that have gone into these things with serious economic um, impact. Again, the same idea of continuous optimization being applied to human systems. So this is Alvin Roth, an engineer, uh, who came up with an algorithm for uh, national resident matching program. Um, the First, uh, physicians uh, in the United States, how, how do they get placements for their first jobs? So that's an interesting algorithm that he developed in the 80s, similarly with kidney matching programs. So this is just a cartoon to show uh, how you're going about matching the donors and the altruistic donors and the families and the spouses and all those things. Again, this is a complete engineering approach which has economic, uh, again, as an engineer turned economist, two years ago he won a Nobel Prize in economics for the work that he did um, some time ago. And, Again, this is something what we now have come to recognize as mechanism design. In fact, we have seen two Nobel Prizes. Um, Eric Maskin, who won it a few years ago, he said macroeconomics is the engineering side of uh, economics, where you get to deal with all sorts of very interesting things. And I think traffic congestion is very different than economy, given, okay? It's very different than tax policy, social security, or even like budget cycles, business cycles, and all sorts of things, okay? But there are aspects of the engineering that I'm suggesting here is something we could borrow or at least engage the technical prowess of engineering community to help think about these things. So all these things are happening, but I think this just calls for a much more direct uh, collaboration. A second area where engineering design could really help economics and policy is a very important one, failure analysis. I've looked at a lot of curriculums online. 
economics and public policy. I'm not sure if LSE has it. There's hardly a course on failure analysis in any of these courses. We are dealing with real systems with serious stakes in it. Okay? The first thing that they ask us to do in engineering schools when I walk in is to break a system <laughs> in an offline way. You develop a model and break it and then try to rebuild it and everything. So now this is uh, uh, that I think it, it, it adds to the, I think the balanced nature and even probably influences the humility of some engineers and not take things for granted and so forth. So again, again, timely, 10 years ago, Hurricane Katrina happened, really bad, great tragedy in the United States. What you're seeing is a picture of a, a helicopter trying to drop some sandbags so that you can um, fix this gap here. And I think this now case studies in engineering school recognize this not as a natural disaster, but as an engineering disaster because you're talking about the failures of levees and flood walls, okay? And for example, this picture that shows the, the 17th Street Canal, this loan um, led to, uh, the failure of this led to 85% of flooding in New Orleans, causing up to 50% of fatalities. Just one single point failure, as they call it, okay? It's a weak link. How do you identify those type of things? So um, later on, I mean, a lot of commissions, they brought back engineers to explain these failures and also understand how we can prevent these failures going forward. That doesn't happen a lot in economic policy, does it? So I think this is something that's very, very important. How do you understand failures, dealing with failures in a pretty direct way, and how what we can um, learn from it is something uh, critical. Right? This is um, something that I took from uh, work of my a colleague, Zachary Pertle, a brilliant philosopher and engineer at NASA, has written about this, how the levee construction over time uh, and the process that it followed and everything, and how, um, as economists and engineers, we all build models. Our models are going to be completely different depending on the assumptions that we take and depending on the equations we choose and all of those things. And as we all know, all uh, models are wrong. Some are useful, as the famous saying goes and everything. So, but still, how do you deal with these type of things? So in this case, uh, the engineers went about developing three very different models. One of them, again, just for editorial reasons, I'll just keep it at a high level. One of them um, used a model that, again, chunked all these uh, uh, levees into small elements and looked at stresses and strains uh, and uh, did the analysis on what could do it better. In technical terms, we call it finite element analysis. Okay. A second approach was to look at the, um, the equilibrium um, on, on these, uh, of the, on the forces here um, on these uh, levees, okay. looking at the point of failures and looking at what type of safety factors could be introduced in this. The technical term is limit equilibrium assessment. Okay. And then finally, you're looking at a centrifuge model. In essence, you're creating a dummy that's analogous to the real one, and then you're putting all these uh, pressures on it to make it break and everything. Granted, you can never replicate the original disaster, but still, you have to do something to understand how these things work. So three, three very different models, and each of them have to converge. And uh, how do you do that? I like uh, uh, ecologist Richard Levin's uh, 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 definition of truth. It is that which exists at the intersection of independent lies. <laughs> and uh, how do you, you know, converge these three models together? Granted, the objective is for it not to fail. So then how do you come up with a, a system that, does, that performs well for once in a 5,000 year storm or so? So that's, that's exactly what happened. The same thing happened with Titanic, right? We knew the root cause analysis had flawed bulkheads and uh, coupled with arrogance 
and then they had cosmetic reasons. That's why they didn't have enough lifeboats for such a huge ship, and it went down. But now what we have is our, our systems that are massive. I mean, the container ships are just orders of magnitude bigger than the Titanic here, and then you can see the oasis of the seas, which is the largest cruise ship that uh, now we know. Look, look, at the, look at the number of tiers. They have a stadium inside. They have a swimming pool and everything. And then here you have the uh, redeveloped uh, infrastructure of New Orleans. So you have to learn from failure. Failure needs to be an integral part of our professional development. If you don't fail, you're not going to be a good professional. But how do you understand failure? And how do you develop tools so you can prevent future failures? And I think that's something we need to seriously think about. We need to have a serious conversation about how uh, um, professional training in economics and public policy uh, could uh, integrate these things into this thing. Finally, human factors. A very important thing in uh, um, engineering. Before I go further, uh, further, I must say I still struggled uh, using the remote control to operate the TV this morning here. Because that is one of those things we have just never learned to simplify. Why do we need four remote controls to operate one TV? Again, that's one of the things I want to criticize engineering in public. It's on the record. So, <laughs> But we also have uh, the enormous opportunity to learn from the end users themselves, the customers themselves. And I think you know, anyone who's used an operating system or a, a smartphone or a disposable diaper, they've all been developed based on continuous user feedback. It is a mindset that's rooted in continuous improvement. So you have to learn from the end users themselves. I mean, until not 15 years ago, I mean, you had to uh, press the start button to sh uh, shut down the machine, you see? I mean, that's one of those interesting logics that engineers never thought of. Someone said, why do you have to press the start button to shut off? So, and that's one of those things in, uh, in the operating system design, so forth. Similarly, you know, now we have fantastic airplanes, and you have these IMAX theaters and uh, roller coasters that are extremely safe, and uh, you're talking about redundancies, uh, durability, reliability, all these concepts go into um, the design of your systems informed by user feedback. But unfortunately, the way we think about public policy, we are focused too much on the policy aspect and not focused on the public part of the public policy aspect. And uh, that's a conversation that we need to have. And it's very easy to sit inside a room and come up with an equation that might affect an economy and uh, not truly understand what's happening on the ground level. And this is something engineers have gotten, um, you know, have become much better in learning from feedback. In fact, many of the top technology firms have anthropologists and uh, uh, sociologists on their staff team to help broaden our thinking because we get too solution focused. And I think helping uh, broadening that framework is going to be very, very uh, uh, critical. But more than that, I think these artifacts aside, one of the things that uh, um, one of my most personal chapters in the book relates to the River Ganga uh, in uh, India, Ganges as we call it. And you look at the complete system of it from start to finish, it's 1,500 miles okay, in northern India. And uh, it supports the livelihood of about 40% of India's population. That's about 500 million people. There are 100, 115 cities adjacent to the Ganges that have, I mean, so I'm talking about a massive living system, but the river is utterly polluted. It's just utterly polluted. It's one of the biggest engineering challenges I can think of. Okay? Now, how are we going to
think about human systems integration. I mean, I'm not talking about me putting my information on Facebook and that's connected to a robot and all those things. But these are real systems. How are we going to think about this? These are tremendous public policy challenges. These are tremendous economic policy challenges. How are we going to deal with it? Now, let's get a better understanding of what happens in the city of Varanasi, okay, which is an ancient town, deep religious significance, and uh, plays a pivotal role in um, the belief of um, Hindus. And uh, people go there to die, and uh, the belief is um, once you're cremated there and you're dispersed, your ashes are dispersed in the Ganges, salvation is guaranteed instantly. So now you're talking about this system here, and you, you can see a picture from a, a cremation ground nearby. And very close to that is a, a person washing clothes, and then here's a guy trying to um, you know, do his daily things. So these are cultural constraints that affect us. You just cannot go and put a shopping mall around it in the name of modernization. You have to take a much more uh, holistic approach to dealing with these things. This, this relates to what uh, uh, I, I love the work of uh, economist Richard Nelson. Um, he wrote a fantastic book called The Moon and the Ghetto Problem. We are so good. You put a bunch of engineers, give, them, give us a mission, give us some money and time, We'll put humans on the moon and bring them back safely in less than a decade. But we still have the issues of ghetto, inequality, poverty, and all sorts of things. Why haven't been able to map those type of things? Because some of the issues that we're dealing with are very abstract, as Prasanna said, wicked. Right? So there's a difference between a technical problem and a practical problem. And my own concerns with engineering education, too, is uh, we are often more focused on technical aspects and not on the practical aspects. And I think that's where we need to have this mix of expertise um, that needs to badly uh, happen. So I met these two really interesting engineers. They're not your ideal Steve Jobs uh, <laughs> looking engineers here. Uh, one of them is actually the priest of a temple, uh, a Hanuman temple, a monkey god, a very ancient institution, um, deeply venerated in the, again, Hindu belief system and everything. And, uh, he has a PhD in hydraulic engineering. So he's a man who's trying to balance the rationality of science and uh, the religious uh, perspectives of the people who come there and everything. How are you able to do this thing? And he has a serious design constraint, which is to clean the Ganges. It's a fascinating uh, story. And then as I was meeting him, his friend uh, G.D. Agarwal showed up. He's a renunciate, you can see. I mean, um, I don't have to explain any further. But he has a PhD in environmental engineering, graduated from UC Berkeley. And he decided to go to India and just call it quits. And now he's just after uh, cleaning of the, uh, of the Ganges. And uh, what he does is he's, uh, he asks tough questions and uh, he goes on fasting until death <laughs> uh, to make sure that uh, uh, development projects that are ill-founded just don't happen on the Ganges. Because the biggest challenge with Ganges is cleaning the water itself. Forget about the environment um, as such. So everything else is secondary. That's what I meant to say. Okay? So they are, have technologies and approaches to take care of the, river, of the river, but nothing has happened because policy and the changing governments often come into the way. Again, those are some of the biggest uh, um, issues. So in summary, the three areas um, where engineering design could help um, economics and policy, at least thinking-wise. First is systems analysis. We covered it. Second is failure analysis, very important. And finally, human factors. All of these three things, and we also, I mean, looking at the Mishra and Agarwal's work, all relate to a balance of empathy and rationality. 
too much rationality is just going to give an off-balanced uh, equation. How do you do that? And I think uh, that requires uh, experience, mixing of expertise, and a much broader um, worldview. This takes me back to where we started, to David Kuhn. As a society, we have gotten so good at recognizing the important works of several others, the famous engineers, you know. We are in um, England, let's talk about Faraday, Brunel, Telford, and Graham Bell, Edison, Tesla, and so forth and everything. But somehow we have forgotten to recognize the important works of people like David Kuhn, who I call invisible bridges, who connect almost every aspect of the life. There are other stories uh, like his in the book, too. But one of the things that most impresses me about David Kuhn is the way he was able to balance empathy and rationality. There's work done by psychologist Simon Baron Cohen in Cambridge who talks about these things. Uh, he talks about the ES uh, setup, um, the empathizing and the systemizing parts of the brain. And Carnegie Mellon, they call it hot and cold. And I think there's Daniel Kahneman who talks about system one, system two, and everything. So there's this um, interesting work that's emerging in psychology that tells a lot of these things. But Kuhn didn't know this. He had all this information from his personal experiences. So how did he do it? So here's the, here's an extract from the book. Perhaps Kuhn's role model for balancing empathy and rationality was Jenny herself. As he once put it to a journalist from Newsday, even her voice on the 911 tape was not of fear or hysteria. It was a calm, still thinking rationally voice, even knowing what was about to happen. I listened to the tape over and over. That's the bit Jenny taught me about death and dying. Kuhn still carries the tape in his suitcase wherever he goes. It keeps him grounded, he told me. One Sunday afternoon, some years ago, Kuhn was driving home from church on the interstate, deep in thought. He heard a mellow voice that he hadn't heard in a while. Dad, I'm proud of you. He immediately pulled the car over to the side of the road. He looked around. He checked the back seat. He rubbed his eyes. There was no one. I lost it, Kuhn said. I sat there and cried for 15 minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Guru, for that um, very insightful um, lecture. We'll now open the floor for questions. Um, if you could state your name and affiliation and wait for one of the roving mics to come near you. Um, we've got a question at the front here. Hello, I'm Martin White. I'm a director of the UK Shareholders Association. I did an engineering degree and I became an actuary. Um, as an engineer who, unlike some economists, is not given to wishful thinking, have you applied this way of thinking, perhaps in discussion with others, to the ownership chain that exists between underlying savers and companies and the role of intermediation, by which I mean fund managers, advisors, bankers, etc., that both extracts wealth from savers and also influences companies to think and behave short-term rather than long-term? That's a... That's a wonderful question, totally appropriate for an LSE audience here. And... Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, I think it, it 
it goes to the basics of, uh, let me get philosophical here for a second here, and uh, what we now call as unintended consequences and everything. And this is not something that we have been formally trained in. Now there are programs that talk about uh, um, how to think about these type of things because there are tools that do two things at the same time. Every idea has a split personality. I mean, we were talking about you know, injecting cash into an economy while extracting money back and everything. So there are dual-purpose uh, tools and everything. So I think in a, in a pretty superficial um, answer to your question, I think this is an area where I think we need uh, help <laughs> as engineers. And I think uh, you would agree with this. I think we don't do such a good job uh, in uh, enabling this type of systems analysis um, that we should ordinarily be um, doing. And I think that's the best I could do in terms of uh, your complicated question. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I am an MSc student in applicable mathematics at the London School of Economics. And um, so far you've talked about how we can use science to sort of apply the methodologies in sciences to economics or social sciences. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. For example, um, you know, Assad in Syria, I mean, he was a doctor, you know, in the sciences, not doing a terribly good job, or Ahmed Shalabi, who was, you know, the president, of, uh, the prime minister of Iraq for a year, and he had a PhD in mathematics, you know, didn't, didn't go well. Um, you know, yeah. and, and so my question is, are there weaknesses in the scientific approach to, to economics, and how can, because it, like what, what are the differences and how can a scientist who wants to get into economics or social sciences avoid the pitfalls of applying um, sciences in, yeah. in other well, areas? Uh, it's a fascinating question. In a way, you know, most of us get into physics and engineering because those are tough questions, but you have a recipe to deal with some of those things. Some of the issues that you have raised, I mean, they just don't have a recipe. In public policy, everyone is cooking to their own recipe. And uh, that's the biggest challenge because we don't even know what the final meal is going to look like, let alone taste like. So I think uh, that's something very uh, uh, important to keep in mind. There are very few, I mean, you can write case studies about it. I mean, uh, how certain forms of governance are more uh, attracted to having engineers and the solid left brain type people and, and their uh, top uh, hierarchies and everything. And uh, that's all okay, I would say, but I mean, you can get some short-term efficient outcomes and so forth, but they probably are missing out on the broader um, picture. The more specific uh, example that I'm thinking about is, I mean, this was an article that the Economist magazine had uh, a couple years ago, how China has a lot more engineers in their, uh, uh, in their in the political structures than any other uh, country and everything, but um, economic um, growth is good. I mean, they have been uh, impressively successful in doing a lot of things. They also have other challenges, such as the environment. Now, how are you going to deal with it? You just cannot develop a smartphone app to reduce carbon emission in the environment. So you just can't. it might be an efficient technical solution, but it might not be a good social um, uh, solution. It might, again, same, an efficient solution might not be a socially desirable um, solution. So that's something uh, it's important to uh, keep in mind. And uh, that's one of the limitations that you might probably develop <laughs> by going too much into the uh, mathematical or the hard sciences, as we all uh, call it. And I think uh, the best way to do is uh, 
mix and match these expertise. One of the strongest messages I have for engineers in this book is to make cultural anthropologists and other social scientists as their role models. Okay, we are good at certain things. We are good at a lot of things. Okay, we can probably produce solutions for a lot of issues in society, but not all of them. And that's where we need to really sit and broaden uh, the approach and the solution space, rather, um, to go about these things. So that's, that's the thought. Thank you. At the front here. Uh, Rohini Sharma, Imperial College. I just had a question about the invisible bridges. I mean, you mentioned that in the book as well, about how there are lots of engineers that don't get the accolades that you say that they deserve. Do you think it's a failure of society that we don't promote and remember these people, or is it a failure of the individual themselves to promote themselves? Is that a characteristic of engineers in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, So... The beauty of engineering is it's omnipresent, yet invisible. Only when something goes wrong, it shows up in the news. For example, this morning, the British Airways flight that just went up in flames in Las Vegas. I mean, showed up. But before that, we have planes just running on time and taking us. So I think that's one of the positions that engineering has. And I think that's the right position to have because we are dealing with monumental stakes. Okay? At the same time, we have also done some stupid stuff and uh, ill-considered <laughs> um, judgments and so forth. Um, but as a society, I think its role is we need to keep us on our, on our task. And I think that's, that's the social contract engineering has with society uh, at large. Now, coming to your point on recognizing uh, these innovators that just go unnoticed, and that's, a, that's an interesting uh, question. And it might also be potentially an agenda for the way we teach engineering in the earlier part of our you know, curriculums and so forth. What is the first thing that we do to students when they show up in an engineering introduction course? We throw at them equations and give them something and ask them to take them through Laplace or Fourier transform and do something with it. And that's a lot of people run away from it. <laughs> but I hope we take a much more humanistic approach and talk about how these people not focus on the barcode, but the person who went about developing the barcode or the persons who went about developing the barcode and why one specific approach worked and everything. I think that's much more uh, uh, humanistic approach and probably a lot more uh, invisible bridges will come into plain sight. And um, so that's one thing we can readily uh, do. I'm not sure what I can expect from politically elected leaders to do about these things. They might give awards and go, but uh, I think it needs to come down to a much more basic level of uh, uh, understanding and appreciation that we all as a society have to deal with it. In fact, there's a fascinating story. There, this was a story of Margaret Hutchinson, a woman we never heard of, but she was instrumental in mass-producing penicillin. That was, again, an accidentally discovered technology right here. And, uh, you know, Fleming just comes back from a vacation and just finds penicillin and he publishes it next year. The response was just underwhelming. And then 10 years later, the two of his colleagues in Oxford who try to clinically isolate penicillin. So discovery on its own is fine, but what are you going to do with it? Then comes Second World War, and its whole the equation has changed completely because they need massive amounts of penicillin for the 
uh, allied forces. <laughs> what are you going to do? Here comes this uh, engineer who got her PhD in 1927, I believe, first woman to get a PhD in chemical engineering from MIT, and she has experiences working in a refinery and um, you know developing processes for high octane fuel, and she supervised the installation of uh, a plant in Persian Gulf and so forth. And she brings in this completely different set of experiences and expertise and applies it to the penicillin um, challenge. Now, the challenge is, how are you going to isolate penicillin? Uh, it's just, it's deadly. I mean, it's such a temperamental mold. I mean, so they put in um, milk, sugar, salt, minerals, and all sorts of stuff, junk in it, and try to come up with the, uh, a fermentation mechanism, and then a process to standardize and produce um, penicillin in safe uh, and uh, high quantities. <laughs> and that's the biggest challenge. And that's, uh, but in the, in, the, in the grand story of penicillin, people like Margaret Hutchinson aren't even footnotes. We have given Nobel Prizes to um, all these three people, um, Flory Chain and uh, Fleming, and they, I think, got a statement's funeral um, here, and all for right reasons. But something seems unjust there. And I think that goes back to the question that uh, you asked, what should we be doing? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think we had a question at the back there. I'm an aeronautical engineer, and I'll try to keep my question uh, that tries to compare engineering and economics. Um, if you look at ad, as air travel and disasters that go with it, uh, we have always been very stringent when it comes to preventing a similar accident from happening in the future. And that goes with all other engineering problems, like the Katrina, for example. Yeah. We can rest assured that same kind of engineering lapses are not going to happen. But then when we look at the finance and economic side of things, we seem to repeat some mistakes again and again. Yeah. We've had lots of financial crisis. Why is it happening in one field when other fields have been successful in tackling it quite successfully? That's the mystery of mankind, isn't it? I mean, like, that's, that's the thing that I wonder about all this. In fact, we have, in the world of engineering, we have formalized the application of uh, quality systems. We have the total quality management tools, Six Sigma tool. Six Sigma, in, uh, in other words, I mean, you're trying to reduce um, an error from occurring, you know, six standard deviations, like you're talking about three errors in a, in a million quantities produced. This was of uh, huge uh, uh, importance when Motorola was producing uh, cell phones. They didn't want to have uh, damaged products going out and so forth. So you have these robust mathematical, statistically rooted techniques that are being used to uh, improve the quality and the performance and the efficiency of these processes. I'm just wondering if they have a role or even at least aspects of those type of tools could be applied to economic policy because we have these things all sorts of, uh, in all sorts of uh, different ways. Greece just happened. I mean, uh, um, can an engineering approach uh, help that? I don't know. And again, that's a conversation we need to really have. And I think economic policy people may want to issue invitations to uh, people working in Boeing and uh, DuPont and see, I mean, see what type of ideas at least you get. We waste a lot of, we waste a lot of time on several other things. I think uh, uh, it might be helpful to talk to other people who do this on a routine, uh, routine basis. Hi, I'm a um, practicing, uh, practicing civil engineer. 
and I think the comment, the question that came is, uh, what brought to my mind is that uh, as a professional engineer, you have to have a license and you have to uh, <laughs> sign and stamp your drawings, whereas in a lot of uh, other disciplines, there is no uh, accountability and also your personal, uh, you know, personally be responsible and put in jail for building a bridge that fails. So I think that if there was some type of uh, program where the people that practice these uh, fields of economics, they would have some kind of registration, some kind of testing, that they would uh, be held responsible, then we would have a better system. I'd like to know what your thoughts on that. Well said. I think we all would. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, civil engineer, and we had rules pre-ancient times, what we call the Code of Hammurabi, you know, if you're a builder of a house, you need to sleep in that building after the building is complete, because if the building breaks, you're dead. <laughs> because, so that's how you were, um, uh, you were tested on. And um, what you suggest is uh, very interesting. I mean, the idea of uh, skin in the game. How do you formalize it? I don't have uh, ideas for it, but I can completely relate to what uh, you're talking about. The PE license, I mean, it's deeply respected um, oh, after your degree, um, it, it's something, okay, that qualifies you. Okay, this person knows what he's or she's doing. <laughs> and uh, you're absolutely right. That type of system just doesn't exist in many other uh, professions. And it's probably because you're deeply practical creatures. <laughs> and uh, maybe aspects of those could filter into other areas. It's a very insightful comment. Thank you. And there's a gentleman there. Hi, um, I am an alumnus of LSE, but I now work for a construction and engineering firm. And many of the projects I work on are multidisciplinary. So I don't work in engineering, but I have a lot of colleagues who do. We also have architects. And as a result of that, all of our projects are very, um, we have a lot of different working styles. And it's always a challenge to integrate working styles. That way we can produce something for a client. And I was wondering what you think is the best way, or this is a very difficult question, but of making the most of engineers' working styles while also integrating them with the rest of the team and helping keeping them focused on the wider issues that our project might be facing. Um, I know that's a very, very difficult question, but I'd be interested in hearing your views. No, uh, again... Different companies have different models, right? I mean, if you look at uh, the assembly line model that Henry Ford had, I mean, your job was to just make sure that the line was going. So it was pretty a linear task. Um, you didn't really have to think about this. You're, you showed up to work and make sure that you produce 1,000 quantities and out you go. And if you're in the quality department, make sure that things don't happen and everything. But then we have also constructed uh, corporations that... Uh, rely heavily on the creative aspects of these things. I mean, um, we have 3M and Google uh, letting people go for work on anything for 20% of their time. And uh, the Google Maps and Gmail, they all turned out to be products of that 20% free time that people had and everything. So there are loose cultures, and then there are tight cultures and so forth. But the, the, the question that you ask is, how do you mix and match these uh, people together. And I think um, it's, uh, it's an issue we all uh, face. How 
we get along with people. <laughs> we seem to be getting very well, uh, getting along very well with the software codes that we write. I mean, uh, some people are just so devoted to it; they even develop a relationship with uh, these tools that they are building and everything. But uh, it's it's uh, again a, a human interface <laughs> issue. I think we all need to. Uh, it's learning by doing, <laughs> um, I guess. So that's a. Uh, Thanks for acknowledging it. It's a complicated uh, question, but I, I think we, as systems engineers, I mean, I hope we as a world develop more integrators, you know, where people who are skilled in building, uh, bringing these um, different actors together. And I think that's where most of the contributions need to be made because it's easy to be a differentiator, okay? We have developed so many specialties. Look at the world of medicine. I mean, a hospital is just a factory shop with like 50 different floors and like 100 different specialties and everything. Uh, so it's, it's easy to develop specialties, uh, but I think it's become a much harder challenge to develop systems level uh, thinkers or even systems engineers. Let's use that term um, loosely. And that's something we need to rethink as educational institutions, how we are, and even practicing organizations, how we need to go about achieving our goals. So that's an abstract answer. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm a current uh, LSE student and uh, I'm studying political sociology. Um, usually physics and engineering often takes clockwork uh, view of the world, but the economy and society are complex systems and one of the fundamental aspects of complex system is adaptability over time. How engineering thinking can tackle, can tackle the adaptability of com complex systems? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, as a biomedical engineer, can relate to it because one of the things that I was taught in grad school is adaptation. I mean, evolutionary principles of adaptation. And uh, um, you're right, that's how the traditional engineering um, works. And I think um, there are a lot of encouraging steps toward the notion that, okay, we need to get better at complex systems modeling and everything while understanding the fact that the model that you develop in MATLAB and Mathematica aren't really reflective of the society at large. You really need to go and talk to um, the people who are uh, involved uh, here. Exactly where, is this me? Okay. It's okay. <laughs> I think I scared myself here. But, uh, um, so I think uh, this is exactly where people like yourself and your colleagues in sociology and political science need to come and uh, um, give us wake-up calls oftentimes. What you've developed is good, but this is the reality. And that's why it goes back to my point why um, companies like Microsoft, Oracle, they all have anthropologists on their staff members because a photocopier is only so useful. I mean, like, if you can... That's, there's an idea of an anthropologist to put a big green button <laughs> to press it and then forget about anything else. I mean, it's to make it user-friendly and make it context-centered. Uh, and um, that's how I think we are going to re-engineer our policy systems. You're absolutely right. The, the field is wide open for collaboration here. And again, what I'm saying is nothing new. Really, people have tried to say this. But I just don't know what's keeping us from doing it. And that's the the practitioner's frustration that I have. And um, yeah. I think that, yeah, one, two, yeah. Question at the back here. And, there was one. and then we'll go to the side afterwards. Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name is Tim, um, and uh, I'm an economist. I graduated in economics, um, and I currently work in uh, 
wealth management, private banking. Um, I have a question, but first a couple of points. First, thanks for the, uh, the presentation. Um, secondly, maybe I'm a victim of wishful thinking, um, <laughs> but uh, I think there is a system in place for people in my industry to be very, very um, highly responsible for their behavior. Uh, maybe not en masse, um, but it's certainly in financial advice, the FCA regulation mm. protocols um, actually mean that more than your livelihood can be lost very, very easily um, if you don't adhere to the, the kind of rules that are set out for people practicing. So I think that there are definitely parallels. Um, On to the question. I'm curious, you said that the New York drowning of those four guys was uh, the, the Coons moment for that, that, move, that particular political movement. Um, do you know of any other policies or um, political or economic, either here in the US or globally, which you feel have yet to have their coon moment and that may be on the, um, on the brink or maybe just awaiting something to happen, as you alluded to at the beginning of the presentation, uh, right. in order to bring them to the forefront of, of, of policy making? Um, so something that's not actually been executed, but is uh, maybe there's something in the book. Well, it's significant. I mean, I... I we were talking about it, the climate change policy. I mean, we haven't really done anything. I mean, how much more evidence do we need <laughs> about, uh, you know, the, again, that's where it gets embroiled in the political um, disagreements and so forth. Um, there are a couple of ways to look at, let's say, the climate change issue, right? I mean, they're pure technology-centered approaches. Um, but then you have the, the human dimensions, uh, which we're still trying to understand. I, I think there's a lot of evidence for it, but... Uh, um, but it requires political persuasion or maybe just brute force engineering. <laughs> but I think that just won't work in the democratic models that we have developed for uh, ourselves. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's hitting or it's almost at the boiling point that we all need to respond to. And um, the tools of engineering are at service, but I think it's at the level of uh, uh, political authority or even the public uh, interest because what happened with those four boys is the, the parents were very influential. The first people they called was the New York Times, and boom. And I think uh, a crisis uh, just automatically uh, came to limelight. Uh, but Kuhn didn't do that. I mean, he went to the shopping mall with his notepad. <laughs> uh, so there are very different ways of uh, doing this. I think sensationalism has a role in um, uh, public policy, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, and I think that's something uniquely a feature that could be capitalized on where needed. Maybe coming to a close, I'll take a, a, a round of three questions. Yeah. Yep. So can we take a final round? Serena, four hands go up, so we'll take four. Um, we'll take two at a time. Just take the lady at the back and the gentleman at the back. Maybe we'll patient. just collect all the questions. I'll yeah. try to answer. Yeah, we'll do two <laughs> and then we'll do another final. Um, I, I think... Um, my colleague on my left who was asking about why we keep making the same mistakes in economics and not in engineering. I work in the healthcare system and mm. we have a basic training, we apply certain principles and protocols. We don't have things called loopholes. Um, and if you're going to, you know, with engineers trying to advise economic systems and so on, devise those, um, economic systems to me appear to have so many loopholes, they're labyrinthine really in the way they're operated. So it's not mistakes that are often made, it's actually the systems are made in those ways that people can exploit them in that way. 
there's no room for that in, in certainly in my specialty in healthcare or in engineering. We have finite endpoints, and there's no leeway for those sort of systems to be exploited in the way economics are exploited and so on. So I think they, that economics could take a lesson out of our books to have a certain level at which to try and achieve you know, their goals and, um, and so on. Um, and finally, the, often the senior politicians that are presiding over our systems, I mean, their level of ignorance is staggering about what they're presiding over in terms of not even knowing how to sometimes pronounce the word that they're presiding over, the system they're presiding over. So they have no training. One moment they're a minister of sport, and the next moment they're minister of health. I mean, it's ludicrous, really. Um, and engineers wouldn't function like that. Doctors wouldn't function like that. So why are politicians allowed to function like that? Okay, can we take the gentleman at the back there? He's been very patient. Uh, my name is Amir, and I'm a sixth form student. You said um, engineering thinks about breaking something down, rebuilding it, and then seeing if it works. If it doesn't, you redo it. So things like the European Union, nobody's ever left it. At what point is it unanimous that it's not working, and countries like Greece are essentially ejected from it? I was talking about the <laughs> toys. That might take more than a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. That's a separate conference that we could have. A Thanks for raising this ambitious question. It's on the record. <laughs> no, no comments. Hi, Carl Allen. I'm a pensioner. You mentioned um, system, system analysis, failure analysis, and human factors. Since we can't engineer all the human factor, that only leaves us with some sort of artificial intelligence. Would you comment? Well, that's the state we have reached, right? I mean, we are just swimming in oceans of data. We just don't know what to do with it. In the name of uh, understanding human behavior, customer preferences, and everything, the book that I purchased on Amazon uh, is putting footprints on so many different directions and everything. So artificial intelligence is a helpful tool. It's a decision support system, let's say, for us to make better decisions. It won't make the decisions. Ultimately, we need to take uh, uh, responsibility in the decisions that we make. A robot could render a diagram for a skyscraper, but I think ultimately it comes down to the human ingenuity and the technical know-how <laughs> um, to see whether it works or not. Because I think that's the value an engineer or an economist or a, a political scientist really brings to this uh, equation. And I know a lot of uh, people are talking about you know, how technology could do this and that and everything. And I think I, I take myself back to the first principles that we were taught in. That technology is going to assist in your thinking to achieve something. It's not, it's not going to think for you. So um, that's the dimension I have for human factors. I mean, try solving the Ganges um, challenge or try attacking the obesity issue with a smartphone app. Mm -hmm. Right. Those are socio-technical challenges, absolutely. That's exactly where we need guidance, too, because you've done a lot of things. It is a profession that has time and again over so long has proved itself to be reliable, durable, and all those things. Okay, now take us to the next level. Teach us how to do it. 
what are your principal frustrations, sociologists? What are the biggest things you're worrying about, philosophers? What are you guys thinking about, anthropologists? Take us to that next level. Great. Well, I will there. We'll need to close it there. Um, give us enough time for the book signing afterwards. So, Guru, thank you very much for um, that very insightful discussion. Thank you.